What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. And my name is Ben Bullen. Hey Ben. Hey Scott. Hey, I got uh, I got a topic today that I want to talk about that um, this one kind of close to my heart because uh, one of my favorite cars, if you remember we went back, uh, going back a long time ago, we yeah. did a uh, top 10 favorite cars of all time mm-hmm. podcast. I think my number one car was a Lotus 11, yes. if I remember correctly, and I'm, I'm sure I do because it mm-hmm. still is one of my favorite cars. Um, so I want to talk about a little bit about the the founder of the company that put that car together. Right. And when we talk about this fellow, Colin Chapman, uh, we'll start well, – let's see. You want to do it uh, – let's do recounting style. We'll start at the beginning. We'll go through the middle. And then when we hit Lotus, <laughs> we're really telling two stories, but it is um, – this this sort of thing is very fascinating to both of us, and it's difficult to talk about Lotus. Some would say impossible, unless you're talking about this guy. Their stories are intertwined. Well, you have to. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, but I, I guess overall, I want to I want to point out too, though, as we go through here, I, I we both came up against this kind of wall mm-hmm. uh, where we decided that there's so much information. Yeah. There's so much detail about this guy and his history, and it's so storied and so uh, so complex at some points uh, that to get all of this out in a short podcast, we just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much to do with the Lotus models. So if you're expecting a complete rundown of every Lotus model, Our engine and, stats, and yeah. engine stats, and all that, you know, we just can't do it today. Mm-hmm. But I do want to give people a good feel for who Colin Chapman was. Uh, the, you know, of course. Lotus as as a company and what they what they meant to the motoring world mm-hmm. and to motorsport and what they mean today. Yes, along the way we'll meet several uh, notable characters also in Chapman's life. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's borrow Tech Stuff's Wayback Machine and they have a Wayback Machine. Really? Yeah, it's over here. Let's hop in. Uh, we're going back to 1928 uh, near London, where a a young, precocious man named Colin Chapman uh, is born. And now let's see. We know that Lotus Engineering Company gets its start in 1952. So we're going to – I'm going to go kind of briefly up to some of that. Sure. Okay. So uh, when he was in 
studying in school in college. He uh, learns to fly. Uh, it's pilot planes. He gets a degree in civil engineering. In, he, oh, I'm sorry. He's yeah. in the Royal Air Force. As yes, sir. Fact, right? Yeah. After he gets his degree in 48, he becomes an officer flying with the Royal Air Force. Good call, Scott. And then he uh, begins – He he the way I've heard it phrased a lot, he starts messing with cars. He starts building cars, mm-hmm. right? And uh, when he starts building cars, as a lot of car builders do – he does it because he wants to compete. He wants yeah. to race. Yeah, here's the thing. He started – I mean just – I'm sorry for chiming no, in no. here. No, no. Yeah, chime um, in. He starts this when he's about 19 years old, Ben. Yeah, he's a he, young uh, man. He received uh, – now this is – uh, this is kind of like I think it was a Christmas gift uh, that he received. It was a 1937 the Austin Seven. Uh, right? No, no, no. This no? is the the Morris Eight Tourer. Oh, oh yeah, that's uh, that it. He, yeah, yeah. He had, and this is his first car, mm-hmm. um, not the one that eventually becomes you know his first uh, uh, heavily modified car. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But you know, of course, he had this this love for machines, and mm-hmm. I think he had a, a motorcycle fetish for a while. And uh, you know, of course, he loved airplanes, and and that design, you know, that's gonna that's gonna. Come into play later. We his, see that echo down. Yeah, yeah. His, his love of airplanes and, and what they're all about. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a kind of a funny story that, you know, when he was, he was young, he was, he was attending, uh, London University. Yes. And he would, you know, have these other two students that he'd give rides to school. Uh, Hazel Williams was one and a guy named Colin Dare. Mm-hmm. And Colin Dare was just, you know, a friend of his from, from class, but they would, uh, they'd be passengers in his car, you know, his, New 1937 yeah, car. Yeah. It wasn't really new at the time, but um, you know, because this is like uh, 1945 or so, mm-hmm. um, maybe even a little bit later. Uh, but he decided that he was going to make it kind of a sport to get to and from the university. Yes, and he would try to find out the uh, the fastest route, or he'd try to cut down on his time to and from different locations. Mm-hmm. And of course, the the passengers are terrified, but you know, it becomes fun. I imagine a so, lot of fun yeah. for him. So. Um, I don't know. This led to kind of a, an interesting relationship between Colin and uh, and that'd be Colin Chapman. Oh, Colin Chapman and Colin Dare. Now mm-hmm. the two Collins, of course. Yeah. And um, they started up what I guess is kind of like a used car business. Yeah, because basically one of the ways that they would cover the finance of this, right? The, uh, Colin Chapman would would sort of would build a car mm-hmm. and demonstrate how well it could go, right? To to sell it. Yeah, he'd take a used car and yeah. he would modify it in some way. He didn't necessarily build a car from scratch at no, this time. No, no, no. Not at the time. You know, they're still at school and yeah. they're still, uh, you know, trying to make their way through university and, you know, mm-hmm. trying, you know, everything goes along with that. But, um, it, it is 1946. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very few cars available in London at the time, in, in Europe at the time, really, because, uh, the British government has a, uh, uh, rationing. Right? Yeah, there's a rationing uh, for petroleum and steel. Very, and, yeah. very few new cars available. So the used car industry was a hit at the time. It was a big mm-hmm. boom, and uh, they kind of tapped into that on a really small scale. They were mm-hmm. they were selling or buying and selling uh, between one and two cars every week between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And it said they sometimes skipped classes in order to make sure that you know like these deals went through. In order to hustle making, those right? cars, yeah. Man. And you know it's an interesting thing that you know they finally they finally got up to the point where. They're making you know decent profits because they're modifying the cars, making them stand out a little bit more right, uh, from the yeah. competitors. And uh, you know, but I think it was like 1947 when they did away with the uh, rationing. Finally, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Britain did, and um, I, they had one car that was left over, one single vehicle. Now that was the one that uh, this is a 1937 Austin Seven. Yes, yes, the uh, the Austin Seven. Um, 
that you, you hear different things about this car, but eventually, if I can let the cat out of the bag, he decides to enter the Austin 7 into some trial races. Yeah. And, uh, not yet a Lotus. Not yet a Lotus. We're almost there, guys, but not yet a Lotus because, uh, Colin Chapman, after, after he decides, and I get the sense that this was sort of, this wasn't like his main priority. This was something he maybe decided to do for the heck of it or for fun. Oh, yeah. He's an engineering student. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's also in, in the, uh, military. He's in the Royal Air Force. Yep. And of course, he's got this uh, this love of machinery and, mm-hmm. and how things work, and you know wants to wants to kind of figure everything out. And one of his things that he, he's interested in, of course, airplanes. Yeah, um, they're all about lightness. They're yeah. all about um, dependability, weight to power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he he kind of falls into this uh, this this method of of building cars. He says, well, you know, if it works there, why can't I? Where can I mm-hmm. uh, draw that over into the automobile? Which at the time. It's kind of an unheard of thought. Yeah, people weren't thinking it. I mean, there were some other luminaries of the automobile world working with those kind of concepts, but it was far from the norm. Exactly. Yeah. Now, even, even in, in, as far as British cars goes, you, you normally think, uh, that, you know, a British car is a small, light, um, you sure. know, sports car looking, cause that's the way the impression we get around yeah. the world, I guess, is that you think of the MG, mm-hmm. you think of the Triumph, you think of the little cars. Up to that point, really, in, in British car history, cars were kind of heavy. They were kind of slow. They weren't more really, stately. Yeah, yeah, they were. They were. Yeah, exactly. They're more stately. They weren't. Uh, they weren't particularly aerodynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they weren't. Uh, they weren't what we think of today. So that's when. So Colin, right? He has this Austin Seven. Uh, he tries some trial races, and boom, he is addicted. He is addicted. He is, he is looking for different, uh, parts of the regulations that he can mess with, you know, loopholes, if you will, to uh, get an edge. That was his big thing, right? That was his huge thing is, you know, what can I get away with? Where's my, aha? Sure. So and, he's uh, in the British road car racing, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at, at this time, he's also, uh, working, like, to keep his car building operation afloat. He's, this I guess, this is probably after his schooling stuff. He's working with the British Aluminum Company. Okay. And uh, what he's doing there is um, he's not just working there. He's also volunteering and he's also bartering with the company hmm. to get parts for building things. And because, you know, of course, the situation at the time is really difficult for him to – get some of these parts so he does have to resort even if he had a lot of money he would have to resort to some sort of bartering deal or so he's got a pretty intense day job as well at the time yes and this is more of a hobby still yes until not unless but until 1954 my friend hmm. when colin chapman says forget the day job i'm taking this Full time, baby. Good for him. Yeah, and uh, I'm devo- I'm devoting all my time to Lotus Engineering and Team Lotus. That would be Racing Team Lotus. Very good. Very I don't good. know why I have my hands raised. I don't like know that. either, but you uh, <laughs> you're signaling a touchdown. It looks like I was into it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he's actually pretty successful in some of the uh, the smaller. Uh, formula series. I mean, he's, he's yeah. raced in, um, the formula, the 750 formula series, not, not formula one. We're no, talking no, about yet, some no. of the smaller series that lead up to that. But, um, you go back to 1950, that's where his, he raced in his first race. Yeah. Um, that's at Silverstone. Um, you know, it was a, a road race ahead of time, but, 
Um, that's where he entered and won his first race. And that was, uh, he took on, it mentions here, I'm going from the historic Lotus register, uh, yeah. about a hist- with a history, but, um, he, it says he took on a type 37 Bugatti and won. And that's not, uh, any small feet at yeah, the time. Yeah, there's those small that. beans. Right no, there. no, not ex- not at all. Um, now he actually was a winner in the 750 Formula Series that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, that was in let's see, just a year later. Um, this is this is after he had met two brothers, um, the Allen brothers, Michael and Nigel, and you know, of course, at the time he's working on. You know, just working by himself in his girlfriend's garage. Yeah. Um, cause he doesn't even have a garage apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1951, he entered the 750 Formula Series and won every single race that it finished. So every I mean, every single one, every single one. And with the note that, that it they finished. finished. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it must have had a couple of times, you know, where it crashed out or what, you know, sure. Uh, handle fish, component whatever, problem. As long as he kept it running, he mm-hmm. was winning that race in 1951. Mm-hmm. And, uh, even, you know, against cars that were, you know, double double the engine size. Sure, by people who didn't have day jobs. Exactly. These are people that, you know, all out racers and he's he's just a guy that's, you know, showing up for the track on the weekend. So let's be honest, when we say this unequivocally, Colin Chapman at this point in his life is beating people with numerous uh handicaps on his own on his own ability to maintain his vehicle, mm-hmm. on his time. You know, this guy, uh when you come down to it, is exhibiting a type of focus and determination that's relatively uncommon. Incredible skill. Yeah. Incredible skill, really. And, uh, you know, this, this very shortly leads way to, um, and I'm going to go back just a little bit more, yeah. Ben, um, the Lotus Engineering Company, because I mentioned, um, the brothers, uh, Michael and Nigel, right. the Allen brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was with Michael, um, and, uh, you know, of course himself, Colin, as, uh, as the two directors of the company, they formed, Lotus Engineering Company in 1952. Um, so, you know, 1952 is when the birth of the company began. Right. Started really. But Two years later, he's able to quit his day Exactly. Job. And that's when, and tell you what, Ben, in 1954, he was beating the works Porsche team uh, with a 1.5 liter car that had an MG engine. Which is just crazy. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, this is in you know this is again a, another sports car race at Silverstone. Sure. Yeah. This is prior to the Formula One race, but mm-hmm. it's a big event. It's a big venue, and he's beating the Porsche Works team. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this it's a pretty incredible story, really. I mean, it had to have just boosted his confidence, like you. Would oh have yeah, been. and it's advertising that you cannot beat with a stick. Because we also see Lotus Engineering. Like, can you imagine you're looking for a race car, Scott? Mm-hmm. And then you're thinking, who is this dark horse candidate just lapping people? Yeah. I mean, he's probably lapping it, a couple people. It's rare to see something like this ever. Uh, today, I would say it's – I mean, maybe there's an example out there, but I can't think of anybody that, that would show up like this and be able to run with uh, so little backing, I suppose. Yeah, to run with the it. big dogs yeah. as an independent. And now by 1955, now we're mm-hmm. going up just another year, Yeah, he makes his uh, debut at Le Mans. Which – has not happened since. No. That kind of evolution had never happened before. No, no, Has no, not no. happened since. No, 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 no. It was actually, you know what, here's the thing. They didn't win at Le Mans. Um, they, they were disqualified. I guess, I guess, uh, Colin was at the wheel, drove mm. through a, a sandbank or something like that. Uh, an yeah. off-road, off-road excursion is how they put it, I think, in the, in the register. And he backed the car out. He reversed it out of the sand trap instead of going forward. Mm. And they disqualified the car. So, um, unfortunate, but that's what happened. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, still, 
1955, you're debuting at Le Mans. That's not bad. Yeah. And uh, by, what, 1958, they're building Formula One cars? Yes, and another thing. Yes. They are building, and I'm going to scramble some notes here, but they are building – my favorite car, the Lotus 11. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're actually, they're building for sale the Lotus 11. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's competing in the sports car series and everything. Sorry for the papers, everybody, but, um, Steve McQueen bought a Lotus 11 in 1959. Wow. Uh, you can find photos of this car online. There, it's mm-hmm. the number 33. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, Steve McQueen, big actor. You know, we've talked about his cars in the past, right, yeah. the, the movie roles. Notable um, car uh, he, collector. He actually traded, he had a uh, 58 Porsche Spider. Uh, I'm sorry, not a Spider, a Speedster, Speedster that he traded for it um, You know, to get into sports car racing. But mm-hmm. um, he owned and I guess loved this Lotus 11, which is kind of unusual for him. I mean, this is a relatively you know new vehicle on the market mm-hmm. um, for McQueen to to back this thing and actually use it in competition. I think that says a lot. Yeah, it does. It's it's the kind of it's the kind of praise that you can't get unless you deserve it. Um, and while we're talking about racing, here's uh, here's one of our cameo characters we should probably mention, right? Sure. And you know who I'm talking about? I think I do. Well, let's see if Scott's powers of prediction are correct because, my friend, I am going to mention Jim Clark. Mm-hmm. J.C. J.C. Maybe not the J.C. you were thinking of. but Possibly JC. not the J.C. Yeah. you were thinking of. Yeah. J.C. Uh, so Jim Clark, um, I think it's fair to say that Jim Clark is one of the crucial reasons for Lotus Racing's success. Mm-hmm. I think so. And he's a uh, – he for a while was um, – I, don't know, I, I guess kind of a household name, really. Yeah. I mean, honestly, because he's here. He is. He's an F one. Well, we'll talk about it in a moment. But he's an <laughs> F one champion. Mm-hmm. He's winning over here in the states. Yeah. Um. He's uh. He's well, Colin's best friend. Mm-hmm. Um. Which is unusual. We'll talk about that too. But um. Also, there's something that led to uh. One one part of uh. The Jim Clark history leads to some uh, major innovations in Formula One, and uh, we'll talk about that too. But yeah. Um. Let's. Talk about Jim Clark for just a moment so that mm-hmm. we get an idea for who he was and how he plays into this whole thing. Um, he was a, a very, very talented racer. I mean, mm-hmm. he's one of these guys that um, had the shining. Yeah, you know? there we go. That's a good I way mean, to say he's it. Just, he's just outright talented. He was originally a farmer. He's born in 1936. Mm-hmm. Um, he eventually became a uh, – he, be, well, he became a world champion. An F1 world champion champion driver driver, with Lotus in 1963 and in 1965. Mm -hmm. Um, And he uh, he was driving the Lotus 25. Yeah, that's right. And he had, had, you know, 25, interesting number. He had 25 Grand Prix wins overall uh, in his career. And he also won the Indianapolis 500 in 1965. So that was a big year for him. Yeah. Uh, Be an F1 world champion driver and win the Indy 500 in the same year. Mm -hmm. Um, And just as a side note, in 63 and 66, he was also finished second in both of those races in the Indy 500. Oh, okay. Um, and let's see, he's also a member of the internet, or inducted in both the International and the American Motorsports Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's unusual, but probably one of the, the, the craziest things about this now, I mean, the great, great driving history, of course, right? Right, yeah. Something really unusual that happened here is that he befriended Colin Chapman, and that's something that just didn't happen very often. Yeah, and let's describe these people. You already have the sense, hopefully, uh, Listeners, that Colin Chapman is a guy who makes things happen. He's he's uh, he's a driven individual. He's very good at working with uh, 
with systems. He's a little more outgoing, although you know he has been accused of treating people superficially. No, but he's they, incredibly focused. Yeah, but they don't – Jim Clark does not look like the kind of person, especially on paper or if you met them together, doesn't look like the kind of person who would be Colin Chapman's best friend. No, no, you wouldn't think so. You think the two would uh, mix like oil and water. Right, yeah, really. because we've got we've got this guy from uh what Scottish border country. That's Clark and he's, you know, he's from he's from farming land and uh the one thing they have in common, man, they both love racing. Yeah, they both love fast cars and they mm-hmm. both know how to uh how to talk to each other in order to get the most out of a racing car. And yeah. that's important. They've got this real uh real and I, I hate the word synergy, but I guess it's a it's a great synergy between the two. Yeah, of them. it may be appropriate. They've both got the shining and if yeah, you they, both have the shining about the same thing, that's all you need. Well he could tell him what he needed from the mm-hmm. car and then Chapman could make it happen and then they could fine tune it and then it's perfect. Yeah. And that's the way that's kind of the way it went through his whole career, through Clark's whole career. And uh you know it's interesting that you know they became friends and and here's the this guy's the youngest champion ever uh-huh. um, youngest world champion ever in Formula One and um I don't know they just seem to like each other it's just really uncommon for Chapman to really warm up to anybody like this right it just yeah. didn't happen that's just, the thing uh Chapman was known I won't say notorious mm-hmm. but it was no secret that he uh had sort of a wall with people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's very strange that Jim Clark on on the offset a cursory glance would tell us it's strange that Jim Clark would become such a good friend of his. But if you think about it, the stuff they do have in common is easily the most important thing in each individual man's life. You know, like uh, Colin Chapman doesn't just build cars; he has driven them. And he has raced. So if you're Jim Clark and you're talking to Colin Chapman about something that's weird with uh, suspension or whatever, he can hop in the car and he will figure out what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. He can he can respond to it. He can he can tell him exactly what what he needs. They speak each to, other's language. Exactly. Exactly. Now, um, I guess we'll get right to it here. Yeah. Ben. We've talked about the uh, the storied racing history and everything, but mm-hmm. in 1968, uh, Jim Clark suffers an unfortunate accident and dies on the track. Yes. I believe it's in practice. Yeah. And um now this is I let's let's talk about this for just a moment because um there was a lot of criticism of of uh um Chapman. You're gonna hear a lot about this um in in some of the, the posts that you read or mm. you know some of the, the historical sites that you read or but, forums or whatever. But the thing is like now He was driving uh just for the record, um one of the reasons you'll hear that Clark was driving a Lotus F8 or 48 F2. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's in a Lotus car, and this is practicing. I think he was in Hockenheim or something like that. He was practicing um, for the Grand Prix that was, you know, that weekend or whatever. Um, here's the the strange thing is that you know the, there's a lot of mention that um, you know Colin Chapman. Uh, was not concerned with spectators. He didn't really care to, he didn't care how many people were at the audience or in the race yeah. watching. He didn't care. And he was, uh, and they say that he was not concerned with the safety of the drivers. And that is an accusation. He's he, uh, gotten. he preferred lightness over safety. Okay. That's something that you'll read often. Yeah. Here's the, here's the thing that, uh, you know, that comes out. If you don't read beyond that, you would never know the, the real reason behind mm-hmm. this. Um, you have to go a little bit deeper to realize that, um, at the time, this is in the 1960s, late 1960s. Sure. And we've mentioned this in other cars too, in the, the Porsche 917 podcast. Yeah. Um, the cars from the 60s and the 1970s were just, they were outright fast, 
not really built for safety in no, any case. They were unapologetically performance vehicles. Exactly. Yeah, these were cars that were built for speed and they were they were uh, considerably light, mm-hmm. ridiculously fast, and uh, you know, like they they put the driver at risk. But that's the way racing had always been to that point. Right. It's not like he's the bad guy in this field of um, incredibly concerned car manufacturers. No, no, no. And here's the thing, like you know you. Chapman was at one point uh, charged with uh, – this is an, a, an unrelated event, but um, he was charged with manslaughter at one point in his racing mm-hmm. career mm-hmm. Um, in the death of a, a driver of his called uh, – his name was Yakim Rent. Yakim? Yakim? Yakim. Yeah, I think I that's think. right. Rent, R-E-N-T. And um, the the uh, driver – of course, the dri- driver had a, a unfortunate accident on the track and, and died, but um, the thing is – they, they claim that he made that Chapman made unsafe cars, and that's not the case. That's not true. Mm-hmm. You have to read deeper, like I said, and find out that this was every manufacturer's making right, in cars in the context of the time in a similar way. Yeah, and um, you know the, the problem was it just wasn't safe. And one of the people that that spearheaded this issue was uh, Jackie Stewart. And a lot of people know Jackie Stewart from his announcing days, probably. Right. But he was, of course, a, a, a Championship driver, Formula One. He was seeing, and this this is for a long, long time. But in the late 1960s and early 70s, he saw a lot of friends of his die on the track, and it, they were all Formula One drivers. But mm. you know, wrecks that shouldn't have been fatalities that were. Ah, uh, yep. So yep. it's not just Chapman. Mm-hmm. It's not just Lotus. It's everybody. And and there was a big push that was led by Jackie Stewart for safety. Around that time, I don't know if it was the late 60s or early 70s, but I know Jackie Stewart was a big proponent of safety in Formula One, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what really led to a lot of the advances that we see today, even even now. Yeah. Uh, but it made it a much much safer sport because they were losing drivers. It seemed like every every weekend or every mm-hmm. every you know maybe every month, but there were many many fatalities in Formula One, and uh, you know Clark was one of them, unfortunately. So, but he um, but he didn't. I would argue he didn't die in vain. However, because this does lead to a dramatic, you know, we can't really call it a retooling of racing safety mm-hmm. because it is more like an original beginning of racing safety. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's a. Everybody's probably, I mean, uh, motoring fans have probably heard the name Sterling Moss before, right? Yeah. Sterling Moss drove uh, form, uh, Lotus Formula One cars for a while, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know. He, he said that they're they're. He mentioned in one interview that I heard that they they were beautiful, but they were, and he quoted this: "They're delicate to drive." <laughs> I like and that. And he said that you know it's 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 that they were um, they were extremely quick, mm-hmm. lightning fast. But you know, you you do something wrong, it's gonna it's gonna uh, let you know immediately what you did wrong. Yeah. And uh, you know that may be the case of a wheel falling off, mm-hmm. something like that. I mean, it was a major major problem. But you had to know how to drive the car in order to do it safely or uh-huh. most efficiently for it to work. Well, the handling itself is not very forgiving on any car at the speeds they were going at. No, you know? no, 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 no. Um, can we talk about? I don't want to roll over you, man. I want to talk about. Another thing that uh, Chapman did that influenced uh, racing, and a huge one in the Indianapolis 500. Remember this? He he uh, got the rear engine mm-hmm. in the Indianapolis yes, 500. Yes, big innovation. Which was which was huge because for a long time, you know, you'll you'll hear um, you'll hear some people, you'll read some people who say that the Indianapolis 500 was being a little bit stodgy. 
a little bit of a little bit of an old man about sure uh, the well, improvements in tech. I I I can see both sides of the story, but the fact of the matter is that Colin Chapman, whether by bullying or sweet talk, possibly bullying, <laughs> got, yeah. got the rear engine in there. I think it's more that, yeah, yeah. sure, yeah, because there, you know, actually, there's a lot of uh, a lot of innovation that's happened at Indy. Um, over the years. Yeah. And he's one of these players that, that, I mean, that's a, that's a major innovation to bring the rear engine car. It changes everything about the way a car drives. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a big deal at the time. So, you know, if you get a chance, just Google Jim Clark, take a look at the cars that he was driving, yeah. the way they look, and they're mm-hmm. just fantastic. They're the green cars with the yellow stripe down the middle, the rear engine. Mm-hmm. These are what I think of, you know, when I think of what a, I don't know, when I think of what an Indy car looks like now. I yeah, mean, not now, but you know what I mean. When I when I think when someone says Indy like, car, it reminds what? me of my old slot car. Yeah, that I have. You know, uh, you uh, got check out our slot well, car episode too. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? There's one other thing here that I should mention because you know there's a, uh, a partnership with uh, John Player that uh, that uh, Chapman had for a while for the Formula One team. Ah, uh, uh, John Player special cars. Yeah, the black yeah. cars with the the gold uh, trim. black and gold. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Black and gold. I had a slot car that had that trim painted on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just one of the coolest things that I had or one of the coolest things that I owned. Um, but I, I remember those cars as being, you know, the, the cars of the day, you know, for, mm-hmm. for Formula One. And uh, there's some kind of neat photos online, too, if you search for uh, Colin Chapman or John Player Special mm-hmm. or whatever. You can find, uh, you know, not only photos of that car, but, you know, maybe a photo of Chapman leaning against a Lotus Esprit. Yeah. And I, think yeah. It's, I think the one I'm thinking of is a gold Esprit, and then that, that's parked in front of a black um, airplane that has, you know, John Player Special painted mm-hmm. on the side, and it's black with a gold trim. It's really a, a neat photo. And that, that, that kind of partnership that leads to that iconic photo, that comes – from a part of the financial world of racing because uh, as you know intimately, if you are professionally involved with racing, as you may have a sneaking suspicion if you're a race fan, race cars are expensive to maintain, to create, to not have wreck, you know. And uh, one of the things we see Chapman doing throughout his story is uh, finding opportunities for funding, and he he made one of the. I think that that partnership with Imperial Tobacco, which led to the John Player Specials, was one of the biggest uh, sponsorship deals of the day. I could see that because they uh, they ended up, you know, the at the time tobacco companies had a lot this is before all the lawsuits and everything they have quite a bit of capital mm-hmm. so uh so we see that part off um i did want to let's see i wanted to hit up there was one more scott i wanted to surprise you oh wait do you know about the turbine powered car i think i do but hit me with some of the details oh you're so hard to surprise that's all right no oh no that's that's why you're that's why you're the auto editor um so in 1968 they have a uh Turbine-powered car, and we have a podcast on turbine-powered cars for any interested listeners. Um, the race that they had it in uh, led to turbine-powered cars as a category being banned by the USAC. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, I just wanted to throw. I want to say in. it was Sebring. Maybe it wasn't. I'm not sure, but uh, I, I think it was something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's an unusual-looking car, to say the least. It's a yeah. It's a weird. It's a weird design. I would love it if people would check out our turbine-powered uh, car podcast if you're interested, mm-hmm. because you know there are some there are some definite design flaws with that, but there are some really innovative things in there too. Um, 
Now, when we continue, uh, we led up to, I think we've sort of led up through Colin Chapman's life here and the birth of Lotus and some of the notable things they've done with that. Sure. I just want, just one quick thing is that, you know, this is a team that competed in, um, in Formula One from, you gotta get, you gotta understand this, from 1958 till uh, about 1994. Makes it a dynasty. Uh, It really does. And, and they, they, I would say they dominated F1 racing from, 61 to about 81. They had about a 20 year stretch yeah. of, of Formula One racing where it was just Lotus, really. I it's mean, a it, shutout. It yeah. really was. I mean, and up until, um, I don't know, up until that time, until 60, 61, mm-hmm. uh, from about the 1920s, uh, you've got the Germans, the Italians, and in some cases, the French, uh, more or less dominating the right, series. Yeah. And it, it kind of was a, a, ser- a sense of national pride if your driver was doing well in the Grand Prix series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Germans were very proud of, of the Grand Prix drivers and yeah. the Italians likewise and the French likewise. But, um, you know, n- nothing like this had ever been seen at the time. And that's when Chapman kind of arrived on the scene with these light cars that were, that were stylish, mm-hmm. they were modern, they were exciting. And, you know, combined with the right driver, they were winners. Yes. And uh, let's see, we've got – so we've hit on how fundamental this man's role is, uh, not just in the Lotus car – the Lotus engineering, excuse me, but also in racing in general. Um, not completely perfect. Made some bad moves with DeLorean. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. We should mention it and look into it yourself because I don't know much – yeah. any of the details on this. I didn't dig into that too deep. But um, unfortunately, he was involved in the uh, the DeLorean scandal in mm-hmm. what nineteen eighty one something yeah, like that yeah yeah in the in the early eighty two yeah. and um, we will end with uh, now he Colin Chapman passed away uh, of a heart attack in nineteen eighty two however he was still at Formula One in that year mm-hmm. that's right and uh, if you want a little uh, little update on what's going on. With Formula One, I think uh, it's important to know too that Lotus is coming back, Ben. Yeah, now they've always been around. You know, had their yeah. road cars. They've had the uh, you know the production vehicles that they've maintained from the beginning all the way through now. And uh, we didn't really talk a whole lot about you know like the the, the Lotus Seven that they produced. Right, you know, yeah. they, I've got numbers here, but mm-hmm. um, that was the Lotus Seven that everybody calls it a Lotus Seven, anyways. But um, <laughs> the Lotus Seven was actually produced by Lotus only for a very short number of years. I mean, from 1957 until 1973. I did not know that. That It's not really a Lotus. I mean, you can get one now. Mm-hmm. You're buying what is essentially a kit car from uh, the, uh, the rights to that that uh, brand or that vehicle were sold to Caterham in 1973. And everything from that point on has been a Caterham or a kit car version. So if you got one that's, uh, you know, from between 1957 and 1973, then you've got a real Lotus. Congratulations. Exactly. And, you know, a number of other successful vehicles. We mentioned mm-hmm. the Esprit, the yeah. Europa. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got the Elise now. They've got the Evora, um, which is one of the new ones. Um, but they're making a comeback into racing now, Ben. Um, for 2010 and 2011, um, there's, there's a company called Team Lotus, which was formerly Lotus Racing. Okay. And they've got a Formula One team, which made its debut in 2010. And it's a group of Malaysian businessmen. And they've got a, they had a Lotus, I'm sorry, a, a license rather from the Lotus car owner, which is, uh, the parent company's named Proton. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's how they race in Formula One. But this year, for 2011, that license is terminated, 
And uh, the team is going to use the historic Team Lotus name for the 2011 season. That's awesome. And uh, oh, but the thing is, they're they're still they've got a little bit of legal action that they're kind of going through right now from uh, the, the group Lotus and oh. uh, Proton over the use of the Lotus name. But I hope they get to. I do too. But the cars are designed to look like the old John Player specials that we had uh, mentioned. No way. Yeah, they're the black cars with the yeah. gold trim, and I think it's Renault is who the uh, the uh, another sponsor. Wait, am I right on that? Maybe not. But uh, again, they're they're the. Uh, you know, the very similar look to the John Player specials that you can find from, you know, the, the late 70s. That's early awesome. 70s, I guess, maybe. We've got to stay tuned. I want to see pictures of that. Quite a bit going on. Do you want to do some listener mail? Why not? All right, Scott, just to make sure that we got that year out, the time of Colin Chapman's passing was December 1982. Very good. Just to make sure. That's not listener mail. I was wondering. We do have great listeners, but none of them has written us back that early. That would be scary, wouldn't it? No, during the podcast? Yeah, that'd be someone with the yeah. shining right <laughs> That's there. That's right. All right, so we've got a listener mail that is uh, uh, from an oldie but a goodie. Uh, David writes in uh, from the internet, and David says, Hey, I like your podcast. Uh, that's nice of you, David. And he's like, I listened to your July episode, 2010, Scott, of Unusual Races. And he was at Houston International Festival, and they were having wiener dog races. Now, we've mentioned before, your pet. Excellent. Yes, wiener dog. Gotta love it. So they were running – these dogs were running in heats of three dogs each. And one heat uh, was a previous year's winner, a very large dog, some other nondescript dog. Large dog was easily the size of the other two combined. They're off. The large dog started plodding straight down the track to the owner. The nondescript kind of dog kind of wandered off into the crowd looking for a handout. (laughs) The previous year's winner went like a laser beam to about 10 feet from the finish, made a hard left, and ran to someone else in the crowd. The large dog took a full minute to finish the 10-second race but won the heat as the crowd was going wild. Uh, the chubby didn't fare so well in his next chubby? heat. He called him chubby? He called him chubby. That's funny. I call my dog chubby too. <laughs> and so uh, I, we just, I, I just wanted to uh, knock that one out because yeah. that's, that's a pretty good point. If you, if, honestly, Ben, yeah. it is so funny to watch <laughs> wiener dog races. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the ears. It's just the, the short legs, what it is. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I'm biased, of course, because I've, I've got a wiener dog, but mm. little Arnie. Yeah. Arnie, Arnie's a good big cat, shout out but, to Arnie. Yeah, that's right. But um, uh, he's not in uh, he's not in marathon shape right now. I'll tell not you yet. No, not yet. Okay. Well, we're gonna get him on a fitness program. Maybe a, a treadmill. But maybe is there a wiener dog treadmill? This uh, could be our next big thing, Scott. I've seen some dogs on uh, a carousel before. It's kind of yeah. funny. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. They they just continue to walk as it spins, so uh, they don't move. We'll be like kind the of, Colin and Colin team. You know what right, I mean? Not, we'll not, hustle wiener dog races. <laughs> not a bad idea. But if you get a chance, look it up online and watch mm-hmm. a wiener dog race or two. It's it's very funny. And while you're online, please do us a favor and check out some more info about Colin Chapman and the Lotus vehicles, especially if you want those stats that we couldn't squeeze in today. Yes. Um, and since you're already online, please tell us uh, what you think. If you have a Lotus story, uh, we'd love to hear it. If you want to tell us about unusual races, we always love to hear those. Or if you have a suggestion for an upcoming topic, hit us up on Facebook, find us on Twitter, check out our blog. You may have heard of a little website called HowStuffWorks.com. Guess what? You can email us at carstuff at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 
for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Dot com slash compatibility.